Hello, and welcome to On the Nature of Things, a history podcast about people, literature, and nature, hosted by me, Chloe Fairbanks. And me, Mary Hitchman. We investigate how the people of England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland understood and engaged with the natural world from 700 to 1700. That's a thousand years of history to cover, so we should probably get started. We'll start things off with an extract from The Hot Cart, a poem by Robert Herrick in a folk song style. Herrick was a 17th century English poet and his work often included natural imagery. You might know him from his famous quote, Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Come, sons of summer, by whose toil we are the lords of wine and oil, by whose tough labours and rough hands we rip up first, then reap our lands. Crowned with the ears of corn, now come, and to the pipe sing harvest home. The harvest swains and wenches bound for joy to see the hock cart crowned. About the cart hear how the rout of rural younglings raise the shout. Pressing before, some coming after, those with a shout and these with laughter. Some bless the cart, some kiss the sheaves, some prank them up with oaken leaves, some cross the fill horse, some with great devotion stroke the home-born wheat, while other rustics, less attent to prayers than to merriment, run after with their breeches rent. When we walk through a gleaming supermarket with shelves stocked with fresh food from all over the world, it's easy to forget that if we were eating what was grown seasonally and locally, the vast majority of produce wouldn't be available. In a farming-based society, the harvest was the high point of the year, the point at which all of your hard work had paid off. The word harvest comes from the Old English word for autumn, the season for gathering food. There are lots of celebrations and festivals associated with the harvest, which absolutely makes sense. If the harvest was successful, food shortages over winter are less likely and the colder months become much easier to contemplate. Some of the most heartbreaking commentary on the early medieval period comes from the Northumbrian monk Bede, who was writing in the 8th century. He described how in Sussex, when there was a prolonged drought and the crops couldn't grow, groups of people held hands and threw themselves from cliffs to avoid starving to death. This story may in fact be allegorical, but the saintly Bishop Wilfred came to Sussex, converted the hungry people to Christianity, and then plentiful rain conveniently fell. But it illustrates really nicely how the harvest, or in this case the lack of harvest, could be symbolic as well as practical. If we wanted to pick this apart, we would say that the people were starved for faith and they reaped the rewards of their conversion to Christianity. Metaphors and parables about reaping and sowing crop up, sorry, (laughs) in the Bible all the time, so it makes sense that Bede would do something similar. For Bede, it would seem really odd that we can just walk into a shop and buy all kinds of produce all year round. And it would be inconceivable that food poverty still exists in a place where the availability of food isn't dictated by the cycle of planting and harvesting. The harvest would involve the whole community. People who didn't traditionally work in the fields might even be called away from their usual tasks to lend a hand. These workers were given provisions to fuel their harvesting efforts. By the 13th century, workers were mostly given bread and cheese, but they also had some ale, fish, and meat. And 
If perhaps you're imagining a muscular man as the typical harvest worker, that wasn't always the case. Women were involved in bringing in the harvest as well. There's some excellent evidence for this in the Luttrell Psalter, a mid-14th century manuscript from northern England, which is known for its really vivid depictions of daily life. The main body of the text is taken up with the psalms and a calendar, and the margins of the pages are beautifully decorated. One such illustration features women reaping wheat with sickles whilst a man binds the sheaves. When it was time to harvest the crops, there would be a celebration. One harvest festival is Lammas, which was traditionally celebrated on the 1st of August in England. Its name comes from the Old English words meaning loaf and mass, as in the church service, rather than something I tried and failed to measure in physics lessons. <laughs> yeah, as with many such festivals, we're not sure when it started or whether it's based on an earlier pre-Christian celebration. Its name suggests that it might have been a day upon which the first loaves of bread made from the first crops were blessed, but we can't be sure. A related, although not interchangeable, harvest celebration is the Gaelic festival of Lunasa, which was observed in Ireland, Scotland and the Isle of Man, also on the 1st of August, and with similarly unclear origins. Although we can't be sure exactly how people celebrated, the existence of these festivals shows the intense connection between people and the harvest, and how the agricultural year was part of the fabric of daily life. We wanted to know more about how people worked with the land, so we spoke to Anjali Viasbranik, who is a PhD student at the University of York. Anjali works on how stewardship over the natural world is expressed in early modern English literature. So we're going to start off by welcoming Anjali and also asking her, what is husbandry? Hi, Chloe. And hi, Mary. So thank you for inviting me today. So I went back to the dictionary to, to think about this because I wanted to kind of get it spot on and to be quite thorough about what we're actually thinking about. So the oldest sense of the word husbandry suggests it's to do with household management, but not in a kind of lavish sort of, this is a lovely household, this is luxury, this is a frugal and sparing management of resources. It's about efficiency and it's related to the word economy. There's kind of an older spelling of that word with a kind of O-E-C-O and then the rest of the word economy, which you will know how to spell. So it starts with this kind of idea of managing a household and then it becomes related to the business of agriculture. But again, there's stages to this development. It starts with thinking just about soil and earth management, and then it later becomes about farming with animals. So there's this kind of, if you imagine this sort of centre of the home and it kind of radiates as the word progresses through the centuries it kind of radiates outwards into kind of this encompassing of pretty much the whole estate when you think of a house you might want to think of managing a country household instead where you would have what was going on in the home and then what was going on in the land around it yeah thank you that was great i love the kind of expansive definition the image of the definition kind of radiating outwards i think was very good so what did husbandry mean to early modern people. I'm particularly interested in the significance of working with the earth. Okay, so in my previous answer, I talked about how husbandry starts in terms of a progression as a definition of a term. It starts in the home and then radiates outwards across the land. So the 
first thing to think about is that we have to kind of un- unthink our modern ideas about what a husband is. Firstly, I would say it involves labour that is both male and female. Husbandry manuals often cover what jobs need to be done by men and by women at the same time in different parts of the household, sort of loosely outlined. It's also an extremely holistic approach to well-being and to good management. So if you get one part of husbandry wrong, other bits will start to collapse around it. So if you miss time when you are manuring the land, you will then have problems later in the year when you can't sow at the right time, you can't plough it correctly, then you have no food, the lack of food then feeds into the household, there's then nothing to cook with, nothing to make medicines with, nothing to store for the period of time in winter when there's less food. So that's what I mean when I say it's a holistic way of living. The other thing I'd say about it is that it's something that a lot of people would have been very familiar with, if not directly experiencing it. It's a high stakes activity. So if you belong to a household which does good husbandry, you know, you have the land being worked, you have the house being managed, you're going to have a much better and easier life than someone who does not. That is absolutely perfect. Thank you. I kind of wanted to know more about the significance of husbandry related events, so particularly the harvest. In terms of harvesting, it's really important to remember that the English economy in this period was just fundamentally agrarian and so depended on successful husbandry. So this is not only deploying your husbandry knowledge correctly, this is doing it at the right times, preparing the land for grain, sowing the grain, grain harvesting, but also lambing, sheep shearing, calf rearing, all have these particular seasons and they all have to happen at the right time in order for the next part of the process to to happen. And I think what might sort of answer your question, Mary, is a historian called W.G. Hoskins sort of summarised this really, really well. And he compares the grain harvests of this period to the heartbeats of the whole economy of England. And that's the quote that he gives. And so where grain is scarce, prices rise. So people become sick from hunger. And Hoskins has another great quote that says, the health and well-being of the entire country depending upon the quality of this heartbeat more than any other organ and activity. So perhaps that kind of helps to think about these harvests as a, as a heartbeat as something that keeps this country alive. I love that. I had not heard that quote. And it was making me think of as well, I think it's Robert Cecil who says it, that bit about, I don't dwell in the country, I'm not acquainted with the plough, but I think that anyone who doesn't maintain it and neglects it is spoiling the kingdom or something like that. So it sounds like that ties in as well to what you were saying of it really does have an immediate effect and there's something people have an immediate awareness of, even if they're not actually John Farmer. So you've sort of covered it in what you just said, but I am going to kind of push you on it a little bit because it's fun. What happens when husbandry is neglected? So I think I would turn to the fictional literature of the period to to think about this. Specifically, I would turn to Shakespeare because I think two of his plays provide really solid examples of imagining what happens when husbandry doesn't work, when 
harvests go wrong. But remembering that these come off the back of real life experiences of husbandry going wrong. So the, the famines across the 16th century, the grain shortages, and then also the grain shortages of the early 1600s as well. These are important contexts for these fictional imaginings. So the first play I would probably think about, which is one that I think about a lot in my own research, is Coriolanus. So Coriolanus is set in ancient Rome, but it opens with a scene of the Roman citizens rioting against the powers that be because there is no grain and they are starving. So this directly mirrors problems that are happening in the early modern period. And as much as the play is set in ancient Rome, the sense seems to be that people watching it, like a contemporary audience, would be sort of very, very intensely alert that this was a real thing that had happened. Ultimately, what happens is the citizens accuse the Senate of starving them. This leads to massive political instability, war, the near destruction of the Roman state, and the death of Coriolanus, the the title character himself. So very big, (laughs) kind of no-holds-barred example of what happens when husbandry goes wrong. The other example I'd probably go for is King Lear. And I would say at this stage, this is not my analysis. This is by three people called Jane Elizabeth Archer, Richard Margrave Turley and Howard Thomas. And they've done this amazing analysis of the botanical concerns of the play and how it's actually quite invested in the relationship between agricultural labour and political power. And they, they do this really interesting thing where they draw attention to the discrepancies between how the play is often performed in like an empty and bleak set. And then they actually contrast this with the evidence that the text gives us that it should actually be kind of taking place during the summer and the autumn, sort of the full harvest time. They relate the destruction of Leah's England to the poor husbandry practices of the play. And of course, this all reaches back out to the real world problems of poor harvests and and grain shortages. And I'd also highlight at this point that these are not abstract issues for Shakespeare, as he himself was found guilty of grain hoarding during the shortages of the 1600s, which is obscene. But there you are, he was, after all, a very canny businessman. And as well, wasn't that driving a lot of rural workers into the city? So there would have been this population in and around South Bank of people who literally had lost their livelihoods because of poor harvest, poor husbandry. Mm, Yeah, definitely. I don't have much more to add to that because it feels like you've articulated that really thoroughly. Yeah. that leads really neatly into my next question, which is basically just asking you if you'd talk a little bit more about how early modern literature is engaging, not just with, you know, husbandry and harvest itself, as you've just illustrated so well with those two plays, but also with like the practical husbandry manuals that you referenced earlier, because it sounds like people working in literary spheres are actually fairly informed about these things. So yeah, basically... I'd love to hear more. I'm quite interested by your differentiation between literature and and husbandry manuals. I feel like you're feeling the same thing now. Already regretting the phrasing of that question. (laughs) Maybe I should have said drama or poetry. Although no, Thomas Tusser writes poems. I'm just going to shut up. I'm going to let you talk. (laughs) So I was actually going to come on to Thomas Tusser. So let's, let's, let's go. So with husbandry manuals, they're actually really, really interesting pieces of literature in themselves. They take on such strange and interesting forms. Sometimes they're dialogues, as you said with Thomas Tusser, sometimes they're poetry. Sometimes they're just kind of straight prose. There's all kinds of variations on it. There's evidence of an increasing interest in at least 
least documenting husbandry knowledge, but we don't really know what people were saying to face to face because how could we? So all of these ideas come together in the kind of new husbandry literature that was being produced during the 16th and 17th centuries, or perhaps that should be actually the old literature that was being reproduced. The introduction of the printing press actually becomes a really important way to circulate old classical knowledge, so old Latin text translated into English suddenly become a new source of knowledge for farming. And if you look at things like the English short title catalogue, you'll see there's a fairly steady flow of these being produced through the period. And it kind of appeared alongside a trend of viewing estate management as a kind of proper occupation for the gentry. It was like the thing to do. But there's also an increase in texts geared towards the less well off. And this is where our Thomas Tusser comes in. So he wrote this entire husbandry manual in verse. And it, there's kind of couplets and four line stanzas. It's it's a mess. But what's great about it is that because it's in poetry, it's extremely memorable. And actually, what's really interesting about it is that it's probably the best selling work of Elizabethan poetry. So there were 18 editions of his text in 40 years. So that's massive. We celebrate like Spencer and Sydney. But actually, it's this Thomas Tusser who should actually be celebrated as the best selling Elizabethan poet. I'm not saying his poetry is any good, by the way. Some of it is dire. But I think the phenomenon definitely presents a really interesting question about the purpose of poetry in knowledge making and sort of knowledge circulation going on there. And Andrew McRae is, is the person you want to consult on Thomas Tusser and agricultural knowledge like that. What's also really interesting is that Thomas Tusser actually sets about to make his text even even more useful. So rather than it just being a compendium of knowledge in his early edition, he actually then alters it later so that it becomes one organised by calendar year. So you have the tasks for January and the tasks for February and so on going, going through the year so that you know what you have to do each month in order. And he divides up the gendered labour. So you have tasks for women working in the household and you have tasks for men working outside and these are also happening simultaneously and as I said before you will find other husbandry manuals will often include perhaps not integrated but they will often include a separate section of women's husbandry work rather than sort of only thinking about the outside of the house again to reiterate husbandry is a holistic process and way of living so I hope that answers your question there yeah, despite the fact that it's not Sydney, it's not Spencer, but it's useful. And so there almost seems to be a sense in which we're forgetting the fact that what was considered important for poetry for most people might just have been, this helps me remember when I need to manure the ground so that I don't starve to death this winter, which, you know, for all his lovely sonnets and talk of unrequited love, Sydney manifestly does not. And that, I think, feeds as well into the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is also to do with the literature and thinking. And you've touched on this a bit with the idea of household management. So I'm just going to sort of synonymize that and go into stewardship and dominion. And I was wondering how do these ideas of stewardship and dominion of the natural world get expressed in early modern literature and thinking? I think actually the best way to think about this in the early modern period is actually to track all the way back to the Bible and to Genesis. Laurie Shannon has done some brilliant work looking at how 
how people during this period viewed Genesis and the ideas it presents as kind of political legal frameworks for how you interact with the natural world. There's a general idea that after Eve ate the apple, so after the fall of man, relationships with nature really sour and go wrong. In Genesis book three, this is the moment where God kind of curses the ground and says, you know, you won't be able to farm anymore because it will be really difficult. However, there's then a kind of second event after that, which is Noah's flood. And then relationships with the natural world change again. So it's not just that it's difficult to grow stuff. It's that animals are then endowed with a fear of humanity and humans are granted permission by God to eat animals. Also, what's interesting in this part of Genesis is that after the flood and everyone's got off the ark and after God has made his promise not to do any more flooding, Noah immediately plants a vineyard and the text says, and he became a husbandman. So there's an idea circulating in the in the early modern period that Noah is the first human to, to do husbandry. So Genesis and the flood become this really critical moment for human-animal interactions and relationships and for dictating the terms of that. In terms of stewardship, what I would say is that works differently. Whereas with Dominion, you've kind of got this quite specific framework dictated by Genesis. With stewardship, you have to take a kind of impressionistic view of what people are writing about at this time. So whilst there almost certainly aren't the ideas of caring for species of animals in the same way that we have now, there's definitely evidence of early modern writers fretting about overused resources and about what it means to use animal bodies. So there's plenty of examples of writers thinking about what it means to hunt animals and how hunting might seem from an animal's perspective. But I'd say the main person in terms of ecological stewardship that you probably want to look at is the sort of poetry of Michael Drayton. He makes quite a good case study for that kind of thing. Whilst I said that there isn't direct species stewardship going on, there's definitely examples of early modern people like attending really carefully to their animals. So not necessarily steward them, but viewing them as beings capable of expressing wants and desires and likes and dislikes and also potentially not cooperating with people if they don't want to. And that's quite important. I think the best person to read on this is Erica Fudge and Quick Cattle and Dying Wishes, because it's just this study of various people and their cows and how they interacted with them. And it's honestly the most wonderful work of history <laughs> that I've ever read. But yeah, people had all sorts of things that they knew about their animals. So there were, I recall quite distinctly reading in this book, this idea that people were aware that certain cows would only like to be milked on one side or the other. Some cows liked to be sung to, and you would have to be aware of that if you were going to be able to milk them. Because this is a serious concern. The cow is a big animal. You don't want to upset it. If you're going to have to work with this animal, you need to be attuned to how it works. I'm obsessed with the idea of a cow being like, no, I don't want that song today. I want you to sing me Cardi B today, please. <laughs> and then I'll be really compliant. What I'm getting from this is that I would have had more success with the Christchurch Meadow Cows if I'd sung them. I don't know, they're at Christchurch, so they probably want like psalms or something. Yeah, they only respond to Gregorian chant, actually. We'll have to go back. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. That was great. 
We spoke a bit about the consequences of poor harvests in the early medieval period. As you know, that's mostly where I hang around. But what about in the early modern period? Would a bad harvest still have serious consequences? Absolutely. In the late 1590s, there were actually multiple poor harvests. And during this time, many people were tenant farmers who rented their farmland from rich nobles. Lots of these wealthy landowners chose to enclose their land to graze sheep and this led to extortionately high rents on land, as well as people leaving rural areas in search of more prosperous jobs in towns and cities. One famous example of this is William Shakespeare. On top of this, people were going hungry and the price of grain was rising. Amy Tigner makes a really interesting link, actually, between the decline in Elizabeth I's popularity and the dual factors of widespread hunger and Elizabeth's refusal to produce an heir. In people's minds, both the queen and the land were barren. It just shows how integral the harvest was to daily life. People clearly had an intense and involved relationship with the land, but how can we learn more about it? We were joined by Professor Marjorie Rubright from the University of Massachusetts Amherst to ask her just that. Could you tell us a little bit about what role the harvest plays in early modern life? Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to try, but I'm going to say, first of all, I think this is a very big question. And I think it's a big question because harvesting played a daily role in early modern life. So whether people were harvesting vegetables or herbs for their garden, whether they were harvesting fish from the sea or apples from an orchard, so much of daily life was an ongoing calendar of gathering and tending the earth. I have a new appreciation for the nearly all-consuming nature of that work. <laughs> I used to think of the harvest as something that happened once a year. And so I wanted to tell you this because I was remembering it prompted by your question, which is that as a child, an art teacher once showed us a picture of Peter Bruegel's painting, The Harvesters, which I later would learn was painted in 1565. It was one of my favorite paintings. It is a wash of gold, endless wheat, and these hard-working and tired harvesters taking a break for lunch under the shade of a pear tree in the foreground. But what that gorgeous painting doesn't reveal is the diversity of foodstuffs that were being tended to and gathered throughout the year, just outside the windows of homes in kitchen gardens. So outside the rare book library and research center that I direct, we have a Renaissance kitchen garden and an apple orchard. So I've been turning to early moderns to learn how they thought about your question. That is, what is the role of harvest in early modern life? So this past week, I've been using our library to think a little bit about this question and have been reading our 1648 edition of William Lawson's The Country Wife's Garden, and that was published together with A New Orchard and Garden. What has been striking me here is the words that keep cropping up. The words that are cropping up in this are not harvest. They are gathering. So gathering is the energy, is the work of what is happening when that kitchen wife is tending to, and essentially what we're calling in this today, harvesting her garden. A couple of things I've learned in our own work with the garden is that in the early modern period, women were very much in charge of these kitchen gardens and they were instructed again and again in these instructional manuals to distinguish their kitchen garden from any of their flower gardens. So what is in a kitchen garden? So these are some of the things that women would be tending to and harvesting from their garden. Herbs, of course, were big 
lavender, rosemary, parsley, lovage, chamomile, sage, etc. Also, early moderns, interestingly, and William Lawson included, list things like strawberries under herbs, pansies as herbs. Now, today we think we go to a fancy supermarket and they'll put pansies on a salad, but that's exactly what the early moderns were doing, right? And you think, oh, that was good. Thanks for my $7 salad or whatever. But in our kitchen garden, we have like all of these herbs, which you think of as the basic stuff. And then these lovely things like strawberries and pansies as well. As anyone who's read their Renaissance literature recently will know, one of the things you're harvesting or gathering for are remedies for the body, not only sustenance, but remedies. And this week I loved learning that for strawberries, these are good for cooling, he says, especially, and I agree with him on this, if added to wine or cream and sugar. (laughs) So, um, you know, there's all that. So what I'm hearing you say is that when it's a bit warm out, I should have some pims or some sangria with strawberries in it. I think that's exactly what I'm saying. I think that's exactly what I'm saying. I think it might help me garden my garden out there too. That sounds like a good way to write my thesis. (laughs) You heard it here, guys. Top advice from the early modern period. Exactly. Now I'm thinking back to the um, Bruegel harvesters and how many of them, I mean, they're passed out because they're exhausted, right? But they're also passed out because they're drinking. So I think we have a new, we have a new mandate here, Chloe. You know, another thing, and this is not my area of expertise, but in, but another thing that struck me about this instruction for feeding the housewife the strawberries to cool her with the cream and sugar was the sugar, which jumped right off the page at me as a new world product that was going to demand transatlantic middle passage slavery and a whole bunch of other evils that we are still in the wake of, right? And so it is interesting to me that some of these instructional manuals are at once thinking about how to import foodstuffs that normally don't do well in a Northern climate. And then also at the same time, mixing just very casually in with these, so to speak, new world ingredients like sugar. So labor, labor everywhere under here, I think. And anyway, so finally, about harvesting, the degree to which these gardens were focused on food scarcity. So radishes, onions, garlic, leeks, carrots, cabbage, parsnips, and turnips are all things you're growing. What you immediately get out of these instruction manuals is not that you're harvesting or gathering these root vegetables for now, but that these are things you can keep all winter long. And there's all these different layers of process for what you can do when you're out of something from your garden to eat. And these root vegetables are part of it. And then finally, perhaps not surprising to anyone who's ever gardened, but I am enchanted with the extent to which in these instruction manuals, the sensual pervades as a knowledge system. And what I mean by that is like Lawson is constantly directing the housewife to color how an apple, like what the color change is before you should take that apple scent the weight of fruit, the weight of something, and how tactile and sensual you have to be in order to know what to do in a garden. So unlike my childhood fantasy that harvesting was once a year, it comes around, it's October, you do a thing, right? The early moderns are constantly aware that harvesting is 
every day, different things. Women are involved in a lot of this and are the knowledge producers and the consumers of all that work. So that's where my mind went. This is sort of only tangentially relevant, but I feel like you might both enjoy this tidbit since you talked about the sensual tactile element. It might be Gervais Markham. I can't quite remember off the top of my head, but one of his bits of advice for if you're not sure what kind of soil you have and therefore what will grow best in it is to pick it up, make a sort of cake out of it, dry it, crumble it and taste it. That's how you know what kind of soil you're dealing with and thus what you can plant and harvest from it. I like it. So I've got another harvest question for you. So you've spoken a bit about art. How is the harvest expressed in the literature of the early modern period? I'm going to say one of the most predominant ways that you will see gardens and earthly matter are on the frontispieces of early modern dictionaries. What I want to say more broadly on a literary note as a literature professor, I just want to put our finger on a paradox. I think that in almost any piece of literature, gathering or tending to the earth, what we're calling harvesting today, might toggle between a vision of paradise and mankind's harmony with earth and or a vision of endless struggle. So I want to take you to three moments in William Lawson that happen literally just a few pages, one from the other, to give you a sense of how you get these two paradoxical visions. And then I want to take us to Milton's Paradise Lost and take us into the garden with Eve because Milton's always good to think with. So Lawson. All right, now let's remember, this guy is trying to to tell us what to do with our gardens and to give us a sense of our connections with them. Here's our paradisial kind of our man in connection with the earth vision. When God had made a man after his own images in a perfect state, it would have him to represent himself in authority, tranquility, and pleasure upon the earth. He placed him in paradise. What was paradise but a garden, an orchard of trees and herbs, full of pleasure, and nothing there but delights? Okay, sounds good. Till we turn a few pages over to a chapter called Of Annoyances, and we read. See you here, a whole army of mischiefs banded in troops against the most fruitful trees the earth bears, assailing your labors, good things have most enemies. So there he is with, you know, everything you do is being assailed. And then finally, and this will get us to Eve, I think is the attention to, and I'm really sympathetic about this now having dealt with a garden, weeds. So now he gives us this, weeds are always growing. The great mother of all living creatures, the earth is full of feed in her bowels and any stirring gives them sun of heat and being laid near day, they grow. So here we have, and this is kind of interesting to me, again, another earth and embodiment idea, right? That the earth is full in her bowels and that like any heat just makes them kind of explode with seed, right? So three kind of very different ideas just within paragraphs of each other about the earth and its relation to man. So, okay, Milton, I'm in book nine. And for listeners who maybe haven't reread Paradise Lost recently, this is the book where we're going to get the temptation, okay? And as an author, Milton has a problem. Milton needs to figure out how to get Eve alone in the garden with a serpent because Eve's very happily married to Adam in this garden. And we've had eight books of all that. So the question like for the author director of this scene is like, how do I get this woman out alone in this garden? 
And interestingly, the answer from Milton takes us right to the core of our question today, which is how do you harvest paradise? So I, I want to read a little of this um, as an answer to the question of how the harvest is expressed. I don't mean to be installing a thesis here. I don't think Milton is saying anything like because of the fecundity of the earth, it leads to the fall. It's not this simple, right? It's Eve all along has been almost a creature of like new science. She asks all the questions about the universe around her. She raises all these questions about what's in front of her. She's a really good thinker, almost early scientist, right? But she's also a good manager. And so she has a managing proposal today for Adam. And that's what's happening in this scene in book nine. Okay. Then commune how that day they best may ply their growing work. This is Adam and Eve thinking about what to do with their work. For much their work outgrew the hands, dispatch of two gardening so wide. So, oh no, this garden is like more work than our two hands can manage. And Eve first to her husband thus began. So it's important. This is Eve's insight and Eve's proposal. She says, Adam, well may we labor still to dress the garden, still to tend, plant, herb, and flower, our pleasant task enjoined. But till more hands aid us, the work under our labor grows. And here's a nice Miltonic paradox. Luxurious by restraint. What we by day lop overgrown or prune or prop or bind one night or two with wanton growth derides, tending to wild. So she's like, look, my God, ah, we work all day tending and cropping and pulling back all of this stuff. And then like in one night, it's all, it's all back tending to wild. Thou therefore now advise or hear what to my mind first thoughts present. Let us divide our labors, she says. Thou where choice leads thee or where most needs, whether to wind the woodbine round this arbor or direct the clasping ivy where to climb. Well, I, yonder spring of roses intermixed with myrtle, find what to redress till noon. Here, this is her proposal. Like, let's just divide and conquer right? This land. And she goes on and she says, she reminds us, for while so near each day, thus all day, our task we choose, what wonder if so near looks intervene and smiles, or object new casual discourse draws on, which intermits our day's work, brought to little, though begun early, and the hour of supper comes unearned. What she's talking about there is that Adam and Eve are so in love in the garden that they spend all the day kind of smiling and flirting and talking and chatting and learning things with each other. And then they look up and they're like, oh my God, oh no, there's not enough work that's been done, right? So I like how this moment is a moment of almost a model of harvesting that's about like we need first more hands, we need more of a system, and partly we need it because both everything is growing luxurious by our restraint, but also our human relation is so seductive that we're kind of moving back and forth between work and play, you know, work and love. I've always experienced that moment in Milton as a very generous reading 
of Eve's thinking, her knowledge about the earth, not nearly kind of the misogyny that Milton himself had to inherit in thinking about what do I do with this woman who has to like, you know, fall and tempt Adam, all of this. Talk about restraint. There's just a lot of inherent, by the time Milton's writing this epic, there's a lot of inherent misogyny wrapped around Eve. And so how to imagine that her impulses are not only good, but smart, right? And yet nonetheless gets her into quite some trouble with the serpent. <laughs> yeah. I'm more of a 16th centuryist, but thinking in terms of the agrarian handbooks of the time, Eve is absolutely spot on in terms of early modern agrarian theory. Eve knows what she's talking about. And I think for me, what really proves this is that up until she gets tempted, you know, she's off doing work and she comes back after the temptation and bloody Adam hasn't been doing work. He's been sitting there making daisy chains. <laughs> I know he's been making this garland for her. I mean, it's all very nice and good, but I mean, she's been really busy that day, right? She's had to like fend off temptation. She's had to like work in the garden. You're totally right. I've never, I've actually never thought of the garland that way, but that is a little bit like, well, it's not exactly what you're supposed to be up to. <laughs> she's like, how many apples did you harvest, Adam? And he's like, look at my flowers. Look at my flowers for you. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's really smart. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, you know, the more I read the Lawsons and the Markhams of the period, that is to say, these instruction manuals about what to do with the earth, the more I think Eve's speech there could serve as a preface to any of those books. So you've touched on it a little bit already today, but I just really, really wanted to know more about the Renaissance of the Earth program. Yeah, of course. So thanks for the question. When I first took this job at UMass Amherst, it seemed to me like this Renaissance Center, unlike other Renaissance Centers I'd been affiliated with, had this unique mix of offerings, which is to say we have this gorgeous landscape. We have these gardens and apple orchards. We have essentially what I think of as an outdoor laboratory for an experiment with the early modern past. And you can come in side. And then we have many rare books from the early modern period, as well as a secondary library that we're building increasingly around this theme, Renaissance of the Earth, so that scholarly research and hands-on practical research can come together. And when that happens, one of the things that's been really exciting for me is that you sort of the levels of education come kind of crashing down. Suddenly, someone who's a beekeeper, who's trying to help you identify the kinds of bees in your garden, and the scholar who knows where the beekeeping information is in rare books come together and both have information to share with each other. So that's part of it, which is to think even more ambitiously than the interdiscipline and to think across the knowledges we bring to our engagements with the earth past and present. Renaissance of the earth then is a kind of collection of research collaborations, graduate and undergraduate courses, workshops. We're doing conferences and keynotes and public facing programming as well that in its broadest stroke is asking us to consider how early modern habits of thought and practice might aid in imagining alternative forms of habitation and cultivation of our earth today. And I don't want that to seem overly, you know, optimistic, but I do think that this climate crisis that we're in right now makes the distance between the Renaissance and our moment a blink. 
in time. And I think we would do well to gather as much as we can about knowledges of the past for today and vice versa. Also harvesting as much vocabulary as we can, because inside the vocabulary is the capacity to imagine alternative futures. So without maybe revitalizing old words or rethinking our own vocabulary, we're not going to get out of this climate crisis. So that's part of the ambition in any case. I want to go and do that. That sounds just absolutely idyllic. And also, I think after a better part of a year spent inside, the idea of doing practical, hands-on academic work at kind of all levels of the university, outside the university, that's just so exciting. And also, it's exactly what we all need just to kind of shake us up. I'm so glad. I know I feel it too, because it's also a model, I think, for all of us for letting people begin where they're at, you know, with with a big question that affects us all. But it doesn't say, for instance, that you have to know your Milton or your William Lawson, you know, but that you might know a great deal about bees. So come and join us, right? <laughs> yeah, that's great. I'm, I certainly feel invigorated by it. And I think getting outside always helps all of us, as we know. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I don't know anything about Milton or bees, but I'm very willing to learn. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But you have the podcast I needed. Can we can we quote you on that? Yes, quote me on that. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Thank you so much. To round things off with style, here's a performance of the Jolly Plowboy, a traditional harvest song from the British Isles. Come all you jolly plowboys and help me to sing. I will sing in the praise of you all. For if we don't labour, how shall there be bread? I will sing and be merry with all. There were two loving brothers, two brothers of old, and of old these brothers were born. The one was a shepherd and tender of sheep, and the other a planter of corn. We've moiled, we've toiled through mud and through clay, no comfort at all can we find. We'll sit down and sing and drive dull care away. We'll not live in this world to repine. Here's April, here's May, here's June and July. What a pleasure to see the corn grow. In August it ripeneth, we reap and sheaves tie and go down with our scythes for to mow. Now when we have a pitched up every sheaf, and a gleaned up every ear, without more do will to plough and to sow, to provide for the harvest next year. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of the harvest. This was actually our final episode of the series. We've really enjoyed sharing the podcast with you. You can follow us on Twitter at The Nature Pod, where we post all the stuff we couldn't fit into the episode and give updates on what's to come. Thank you to our interviewees for their insight and enthusiasm, to our actors who have read the historical texts for each episode, and to you, wonderful listener, for coming along for the ride. This episode was produced by Mary Hitchman and Chloe Fairbanks. The artwork is by Chloe Fairbanks. The theme tune is by Alexander Nakarada and is licensed for use under Creative Commons. Thank you to our actors for this episode, Rebecca Williams and Laura Coppinger for bringing these historical texts to life. We are grateful to Torch Oxford for supporting this project. Music